Well, good evening, and a very warm welcome to you. I can't see you, but I have been hearing you, and you sound great. In the next few minutes, I want to talk to you to this rather cheesy title, Christmas, A Stable Relationship with God, question mark. A Stable Relationship with God. And I was thinking, as I prepared this talk and thought back to previous Christmases, how strange life has become, so that if we think back to just a couple of years ago, we we would never have guessed the life that we're living today. Who would have thought we'd ever send out an invitation to a carol service that would say, come masked? And thinking back just to a couple of years ago, I'm amazed how we've adapted and adjusted to this new world order. You know, in the olden days, we used to begin conversations like this. Hello, how are you? And the new protocol is you begin conversations like this. I can't hear you. And we've got a whole new vocabulary, haven't we? We've got words like Zoom and self-isolate and social distancing and covid and Thankfully, humour has come to the rescue. All sorts of tweets have gone out in the last year. I want to share one or two with you. From Manchester, England, a tweet went like this during the first lockdown. For the first time in history, we can save the world by lying in front of our TV and doing nothing. Let's not screw it up. (laughs) And in Hamburg, Germany... A tweet went like this, they're preparing for crises by stocking up with sausage and cheese. That's the worst case scenario. Okay, that is pretty bad. (laughs) Stockholm, Norway, where I'm told they couldn't wait for the end of a two-metre social distancing rule so they could go back to normal life of six metres distance. (laughs) And the behaviour of one child in Hampshire in the UK on Guy Fawkes night when his parents handed him a sparkler, was to ask, do I put it up my nose? (laughs) Well, that child's response when being given a sparkler is actually quite like some people's response when being handed Christmas. What on earth do we do with this? And quite a few people have forgotten that instead of putting it up your nose, it can actually light up your world. And in the next few minutes, I want to try and explain to you as clearly as I possibly can how the events of that first Christmas can impact us today and actually help us to navigate our way through and face tomorrow. And I want to speak personally to you for a moment. I know that I haven't met very many of the people I'm talking to tonight, so you don't know me at all. So I just want to tell you, my name is Rupert, I'm married to Liz, and we have got to adult children. And I'd like you to know that at the end of March 2020, we were living in Cambridge, where I was then the vicar of a church there. And COVID came and shook up our world. First of all, my adult son, who's a teacher in London, uh, texted me on WhatsApp to say he wasn't feeling all that well. Could he come home? So like any good parent, I said, of course, come home and we'll look after you. And 10 days later, He was admitted to Adambrook's hospital, put into a coma and put on a ventilator. And within days of him being admitted, I was taken to hospital, this time in an ambulance, 
I too was put into an induced coma and on a ventilator for five days and nights before pulling through. And my son pulled through too. And our experience was replicated thousands and thousands of times up and down the country. And not everyone was so fortunate as to survive. And many are still struggling, and I know that, and you know that. And around the world, it's still a battle. And what made a huge difference to me, to my son, to my wife and to my daughter as they waited at home by the telephone to hear what was going on in the hospital, what gave us peace? What gave us hope? What gave us solace and strength? Well, it's all tied up in the first Christmas, and I want to share how that is with you. And I want to highlight just a very few facts about Christmas and ask you to think with me about them again. And the first one is this. Right at the heart of the Christmas story, which I know you're very, very familiar with, is this fact. God has come to help his people. God has come to help his people. That's at the heart of the Christmas story. I don't really like the phrase, the Christmas story, because it makes it sound a bit too much like, say, a fairy story. And it isn't a fairy story, it's a factual story. So it's at the heart of the Christmas events. John's Gospel uh, puts it this way, God tabernacled amongst us, which is very old-fashioned language, but you could think of it like this, God pitched his tent with us. We're so familiar with the Christmas story that actually... I think we have to look at it pretty hard to try and get beneath its skin. In the last couple of years, there's been a a program on the BBC called Fake or Fortune, and it runs to a formula which is pretty much like this. Two people uh, go into some house, or it may be an art museum, uh, and they connect themselves with some artwork. And it's very often stored in the basement or it might be on the side wall of a house and it's, it's been sitting by a chimney where it's belching out smoke and now all you can see of this picture it is overlain with accretions of dirt. And they speculate as to whether this artwork could be by a grandmaster and of international significance or whether it's just a fake and hardly worth anything at all. And uh, it's quite exciting to watch in many, many ways. But they go through a procedure week in, week out. And what they do is they, they take the picture off the wall or out of the attic or out of the basement and they try and trace its history and they try and track its previous ownership. And they look for signs that might uh, authenticate the attribution or expose it as a fake. And they carefully strip away the overlay, the improvements and they get back to the original artwork. And then they carbon date the paints most usually, and they say if it's of the right period, and then they come to a conclusion. Well, what happens when you and I try and do that with Christmas? Well, very quickly we discover that some of the things that come off the canvas, because they're definitely later additions, they're embellishments. And so, for example, no one seriously thinks that the events we celebrate of Christmas actually happened in December, uh, and that was suggested as a date to celebrate in the middle of winter, really. That is definitely a later edition. 
Christmas cards, they're a Victorian invention. Turkey and all of that, which I absolutely love. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas for me without Turkey. And that's a very modern thing too. Where did we turn to when you've stripped all this lot away? You turn to the scriptures to see what they themselves say is the authentic Christmas story. And underneath the layers, in the historic accounts of that first Christmas, is a story which is not really fluffy or sweet or soft-hearted at all. It's rather bitter and uncomfortable. About a couple of migrants, Mary and Joseph, away from their hometown, being caught out in Nazareth, where they've gone to register for a census. They're dirt poor, and they give birth to a child in the backyard. And when you and I examine those stripped-backed facts, how do we evaluate this story? Well, it's highly influenced by the fact that the baby is not just any old baby. He is, if you and I can see it this way, God come in human form. Really? You say, really? Why would God want to do that? And I've given you the answer to that already. Because God wants to help his people. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. God, who is light, chooses to step into the darkness, to experience it head on. Just think with me for just a moment and reflect with me what it would mean about God's nature and character if indeed he did this. You and I, we just didn't have a say in when we were born or where we were born for that matter. I think it would be quite a good party game of a sort if you had the choice to choose anywhere in the world to be born in any area any era of time, when would you want to be born or to have been born? And what part of the world? You know, before anaesthetics, before antibiotics, or after TV and before social media, I don't know, where would you place yourself? But God did have a choice. God could determine when and where he would be born. And he had the foreknowledge to know the whole of history and what that would be like. And he chose to be born in a place of obscurity, really. And he chose to be born, he could have been born anywhere, could have been born in any palace in the world. And he chose to be born in poverty instead. He didn't choose a position of affluence or influence, but the bottom of the heap, in an obscure place in poverty. He chose to be born a Jew at a time when the Jewish nation were under suppression of a Roman superpower. I suppose it would be a bit like choosing to be born as a Ouija in China at the moment. And he was accessible, approachable, because God had come to help his people to experience life as so many people experience it, vulnerable. 
Now, if we change places and I was sitting where you are and I was listening to someone else speak, I'd be wanting to say to them at this point, hang on a moment, don't get carried away. Uh, what on earth makes you think that that baby is God? That's a leap if ever there was one. And then I would want to say, surely that's inherently improbable. The odds are stacked against it. And I would agree with you. The odds are stacked against it statistically because of all the births that have ever been in the whole history of the world, this has only ever happened once. So statistically, you're right, the odds are not favorable, but it only has to happen once if it's true. And then this birth looks completely different and this life looks completely different. But it's such a big claim that you have to look at the evidence carefully, of course we do, and the clues are there. The clues are there in the scriptures that what we see before us is more than just a baby. Actually, you know, and I'm sure you do know, it's pretty difficult to see much when you stare into the eyes of a baby. And it's pretty difficult to know what to say when you stare in the eyes of a baby. It's one of those occupational hazards, actually, if you're a vicar. Someone will come up to you and they'll present you with this bundle and they'll be glowing with pride over this bundle. And for the life of you, you can't work out if it's a boy or a girl. And for the life of you, don't tell them this, but you can't really see what's so brilliant about it. But I know that because when I had my first child, I wandered around with her and with pictures of her, and I showed them to everyone, and I just glowed with pride. And I'd say, isn't she beautiful? Oh, she's wonderful. And on and on I went. When I revisited the photographs, about 10 years later, I could then understand why they didn't always look instantly as if they agreed. But anyway, be that as it may, the thing that you should say when someone shows you their baby is you should say, wow, that really is a baby. <laughs> and that solves everything. Anyway, any, anyway, this baby, this baby, what can we say about him? Well, even at birth, Things were strange, weren't they? People came to worship him. The shepherds, uh, they were met with an angelic chorus in the sky. That doesn't happen every day. They had a tip-off, didn't they? The wise men from the east, they had a star to follow. To Mary, to Joseph, they'd been given the heads up by angelic messengers, by the visit of their cousin Elizabeth. Now, I'm going to cheat a bit at this point because we've got evidence, we've got more to go on than just the birth of this child Jesus. We can actually look forward a bit. We can see what he did with his life. And I want to do that. Many, many years ago now, a friend of mine challenged me when I was not a follower of Christ to actually read an account of Jesus' life for himself, for myself. And they gave me a copy of John's Gospel. And incidentally, I'm going to suggest at the end of this talk, we like to give you a copy of John's Gospel. And so as you go out of the door over there at the end of the evening, you will find little booklets, and they are just John's Gospel in a modern translation. If you want to take one home, I'd be so thrilled about that. And as I read this book, which was very unfamiliar to me, I came across a, a sentence very near the beginning of John's Gospel, it goes like this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. 
Now, you might be tremendously familiar with that verse, but I have to tell you that when I read that, I was totally not familiar with it. And I put down my copy of this little book. I was, I was sitting in a room on my own, and I remember saying to myself in my head, God, you're making this extremely difficult for yourself because you're saying that you love the whole world. How are you going to prove that? And I just thought for a moment or two, I thought, it's a strange claim for God to make. I thought, I don't even love all the people in my house that I'm sharing with a few other students. I don't love the people on my course very much. I don't love the people in the university, all of them. I'm quite sure about that. God, how are you going to show me convincingly that you love the world? I picked up the book and I thought, this is going to be a challenge for God. Well, I'm not going to talk to you tonight about everything I discovered when reading that book. We'd be here a long time. I'm not going to talk about the fact that Jesus turns water into wine. I'm not going to dwell on the fact about the healing miracles, that he restored people's sight, that paralyzed people got up, that lepers were made whole. I'm not going to dwell on the fact that the words of Jesus' teaching were so profound that they're still being discussed all over the world today. We won't stop to consider the fact that he walked on water or he stilled the storm with a word. But I would just point out to you, by way of modern comparison, that if you or I could do any of these things, any one of these things, and you mentioned them in a job interview, you'd probably get the job. You know, imagine they said to me, Mr. Charkham, what can you offer us if we offer you a job? Well, I can always come to a Christmas party and I can turn your water into wine anytime you ask. I'm sure they'd give me the job if I could actually do it. Or I could raise the dead with the word. Will that, that be helpful? Here's a really extraordinary thing, though. Imagine you had all those things on your CV. You know, walked on water, healed the sick, water into wine. And you were asked, what's your most glorious moment? Which would you pick? Here's what Jesus picked. None of them. He says his moment of glory was actually when he died on the cross, when he was crucified. And the reason that is the most glorious thing that he did is all in the clue of Christmas. We are told in the Christmas reading that his name was Jesus because he's come to save the people from their sins. What does that mean? He's come to reconnect God's people with God himself. He's come to bridge the divide. Most people in this country own a Bible, and very few of them have read it. It's not an easy book to read. It's composed of 66 different books, as a matter of fact. But it's a love story, and it's a rescue story. And it's a story of family breakdown. Very, very near the beginning of the book, in the book of Genesis, there's a fallout. Mankind and God fall out. And there are consequences to this. A rift opens up. And you could say, if you wanted, and it would be accurate, 
that the results of this fallout were distance and darkness, that we, mankind, felt estranged from God and not on speaking terms with God. We felt that we were doing life in the dark, that something was broken. And from the moment of the original fracture, there are hints about God's rescue plan. And a time is spoken of by the prophets when God himself would bridge the gap, open a new way back into his presence. We, we know all about fractured relationships. We live in a world where it's common. We know about marriages falling apart and families falling apart and loneliness. In that first reading, or in the reading we had actually from Isaiah, it said each of us have gone our own way. And we have. We've walked out of God's company straight into trouble. And what the Christmas story tells us is that Jesus came to offer us an enormous swap. He reached out to us and he said, I will carry the dirt. I will carry your mistakes. I have come to reconcile you to God. And in the carol that we shall sing very shortly, we shall sing those words about God and heaven and being reconciled to him. And, you know, when I was on that hospital trolley, literally just before being made unconscious, a nurse asked me, oh, by the way, if it's necessary, do you want to be resuscitated? And, you know, at that moment I realised, gosh, this situation's really rather serious. And, and in all the confusion and all the illness and all the danger and with death being a real possibility, I absolutely knew the peace of God and the love of God. And I knew it then, just as I've known it every single day since December the 8th, 1980, when I decided that I believed what I read in the scriptures, that Jesus was the Son of God. It's as if the Christmas message is, I loved you this much to come, and I loved you this much to die for you. That's at the heart of Christmas. That's the message of the angels, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to all people. He will save the people from their sins. The last point I want to make tonight is a challenge to us. I want you to know that I think there are two ways of doing Christmas, and I've done both of them. In the first part of my life, up to the age of 20, the way I did Christmas was like this. And I don't think it was very different from how most people do Christmas in this country, at least. And it was very enjoyable. I'm not pretending it wasn't. In my childhood years, I'd get up early and Santa would have come and I would unwrap the stocking and I would love the presents. Then I would open loads more Christmas presents. And because of a way that we did things in the family I was brought up, we then would have to write our thank you letters before lunch and then we'd go off to an amazing lunch, lots and lots of turkey and everything like that. And then we'd watch the Queen make her speech, probably having put a bet on the colour of her dress. And then we'd go for a family walk and in the afternoon, Morecambe and Wise would put us to sleep. And uh, that was great. 
But in 1980, I did Christmas differently. And it wasn't so much a difference between, say, a lockdown Christmas or an unlocked Christmas. It was Jesus was included in my Christmas. Because during that year, having read John's Gospel, I became clear. It was as if God was calling to me and saying, Rupert, will you, will you actually change your life and follow me? Will you allow me to give you a new life? Will you receive the forgiveness and the joy and the peace that I have for you? Will you be open to the plans that I have for your life? It wasn't a decision I find easy to make, but it was a decision I made. And I accepted God's forgiveness. I accepted his offer to lead me on in life. And the seeds of peace that I had then have been growing ever since. And I trust will for the rest of my life too. But here's the puzzle and conundrum about Christmas. And this has been so ever since the very first one. There's a little telling phrase in John's Gospel. It says, to all who received him. Not everyone did. There is a recognition problem over Christmas. There is a struggle to surrender, to let God come and take over your life, if you like. John wrote, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's as if God would say to us, are you receiving me over? You know, back then, the first Christmas, many just walked past. Many walked past that, that inn. Many ignored that child in the manger. And as he grew up, as we were told again in that reading from Isaiah, there was nothing attractive about him that we should look twice. Many didn't. They walked past. But some did. And my hope and my prayer is that you will be prepared to at least think twice about Christmas and its meaning for you. While I would absolutely love it if some of you decided that tonight you will turn over your life to Jesus, I would actually be very thrilled if some of you would do something rather simpler. Just agree that you will investigate for yourself whether there's anything to this Christianity business or not. And so that's why I'd like to say, on your way out of church tonight, after you've stayed and enjoyed mulled wine and anything else that we offer you, do just quietly pocket one of those John's Gospels. Take it home with you, find a quiet time. It won't take you more than an hour to read it through. And just ask yourself, is it possible that the person I'm reading about here really is the Son of God? Investigate. What have you got to lose? And you've got a great deal to gain. But maybe actually you've heard all this before and maybe it's ringing some reminding bells in your heart tonight and actually you know, I do believe this. I've just never done anything about it. Maybe you want to do more than investigate. In which case I would say it's very simple. Invite, invite 
Jesus to make a difference to your life. Surrender to him. Of course, you don't know everything there is to know about him. I don't either, but you might know enough just to cry out and say, help, I need your help. That is a prayer God answers. And then thirdly, just like every other Christmas present you're given, you need to receive it, don't you? You need to actually open it. I mean, if you went home tonight and you found all your previous Christmas presents from years gone by and you just hadn't unwrapped them, what a waste that would be. You need to decide you're going to unwrap Christmas. And the way you do that, having opened the present, it's a private transaction between you and God. You surrender. You say to yourself and to him, I want to be under new management. I like the idea of being reconciled. But you know, in any reconciliation, there is a step in which you have to say sorry. There's a step in which you, ha- you can't just say this is all your fault, because it never is all one side's fault. But you can say, I'm sorry, I own the mess that my life is in. I own the fact, God, that I've ignored you, walked away from you. But I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm told you'll do that. I'm told that's why you came. You know, at the centre of this Christmas story, as I come to an end, I'm just pointing out, the centre of this Christmas story, you find people go out of their way to find Jesus. And when they found him, they worshipped him. Just a second, we're going to sing a familiar carol. And in it are these words, which if you want to, you can make your own. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I was a wise man, I would do my part. But what I can, I give him. Give him my heart. Amen.